When we talk about the concept of democracy today, it's not just about the freedom of voting, and also to a large extent. More and more people today across the world are paying attention, especially to this international relations. Given the fact that what happened in one country has direct impact to the neighboring countries as well. Previously, if you follow our show, that we've been addressing this ongoing political and social unrest within the country of Syria. I remember the first time I ever set my foot in the nation of Syria and the specifically the capital of Syria, Damascus. I will never forget that the people talked to me regarding their hope and also their dreams to become one democratic country. Well, again, right now we're in the year of 2023. How should we understand the de democratic system within the nation of Syria? Or the better question we need to ask today is: Is it still too late to address this question today? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Dr. Christian Elrikson. Again, Dr. Elrikson is the fellow for the Middle East at Rest University Baker Institute for Public Policy, and his research spans on the history and the political and international political economy, and also the international relations of the Gulf states and their changing position within the global order. Well, Dr. Elrikson, and welcome back to the Mason Piece. Thank you for having me back. Well, again,、uh, Dr. Elrikson, I want to get started based on the latest news that Syria's foreign minister has visited Saudi Arabia for the first time in more than a decade. And of course, we know that previously Syria was suspended from the Pan Arab Organization in 2012 after Assad's brutal crackdown and a popular uprising triggered the outbreak of civil war. That devastated the country. May help us to understand the significance regarding the serious foreign minister visitation to Saudi Arabia, and also how should we understand the current unsocial rest in Syria today? What do you say to that? Well, as you know, the、uh, uprising began in 2011, and、uh, large parts of Syria fell out of government control. And initially, several of the Gulf states—Saudi、uh, Arabia, Qatar—many、mm. people in Kuwait were supporting groups of the opposition, and、uh, there were many different groups.、Uh, they weren't all supporting the same ones, which contributed to a fragmentation of the opposition movement. It was difficult to、uh, align and unify all the opposition groups into one、uh, anti-government、mm. uh, movement. And of course, over time, elements of the opposition radicalized, became、uh, more extreme in their own terms. We obviously culminated in the rise of the Islamic State in 2013, 2014, which really changed the nature of the uh, Syrian uh, conflict to some extent. We uh, had uh, obviously the U.S. expressing concern by 2014 at.、Uh, The direction which some of the policy was going, we had the Gulf states really stepping back from providing support, financial and other logistical support, to the opposition. 
by about 2014, especially once Islamic State became uh, an issue of global concern. And really then in 2015, the Russians intervened on the on behalf of the Assad regime and, uh, and quite decisively shifted the balance back in favor of, of the Assad regime, which has been able to, to some extent, to reimpose its authoritarian control over mm. much of, but not all of Syria. And so what we've seen over the last couple of years, I'd say since 2020, has been cautious attempts by some of the states in the Middle East, uh, UAE especially, also Oman, to some extent Bahrain as well, and the Gulf, to, um, I guess, adapt to the reality where, in their view, Assad has sort of won this uh, decade-long civil war, and they, they're trying to reintegrate, or at least re kind of find ways of working with him once again. Now, the significance of the most recent moves with Saudi Arabia is that Saudi Arabia is the most powerful country in the Middle East right now. Mm. And it's one thing if uh, Assad goes to uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, which he did last year and again just a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, one thing if he goes to Oman to meet the Sultan of Oman, which he did last month. But uh, I mean, the big fires, in a sense, is Saudi Arabia. And, uh, we have an Arab League summit coming up in Saudi Arabia in May. As you say, with the Arab League has suspended Syria since 2012. And That's right. There's at least a, a sense that Saudi Arabia is trying to uh, rally a consensus within the Arab League for Syria's readmission. Uh, it may not be as easy as that. There are certainly countries like Qatar, Kuwait, and uh, several other countries that are believed to be uh, against any reintegration, any normalization mm. with, with the Assad regime or at least any normalization without political conditions, which would include uh, a serious negotiations and rehabilitation of opposition groups in Syria. So that's where we stand. But the significance is that Saudi Arabia is sort of, sort of the big prize in terms of uh, re-establishing diplomatic relations, not only because of their size, but also because of the upcoming Arab League meeting as well in May. Mm. Professor, I want to read something to you and also want to get your reaction on this. Again, as we mentioned before, the Syria's foreign minister has visited the Saudi Arabia. Now, according to the statement or what we call a joint statement issued between the two countries. Now, this is what was said at the press conference that the foreign ministers discussed the necessary steps to find a comprehensive political resolution to the Syrian crisis that would achieve national reconciliation and also contribute to the return of the Syria to the Arab League. Now, again, help us to understand what does that mean that when we say that in order to, to guarantee that Syria's seat at the Arab League, how much can we trust the joint statement at this moment. And also, meanwhile, why should we be so concerned regarding the role of Syria when we talk about this entire Arab League? What is the significance behind that? Well, the significance is the Arab League is the main pan-Arab organization. And obviously, Syria's readmission into that body would send a very powerful signal that uh, everything that has happened since 2011, 2012 has mm. now come to an end and we're now into a, a new phase in this uh, decade-long uh, conflict. Obviously, the earthquake which hit 
Syria and southern Turkey on the 6th of February has also changed to some extent uh, the dynamic. We've seen a lot of mm. uh, new sort of well, flights of uh, aid and humanitarian supplies. And of course, a lot of the areas in northern Syria are still uh, believed to be at least aligned with uh, non-government forces. And so there's also a humanitarian dimension, and this could be a way of trying to talk about reconciliation to use the earthquake and post-earthquake relief as a way to try and bring the parties closer together. But I mean, you talked about lack of trust, and obviously the Assad regime is you know, not trusted as by many people within Syria, but also outside mm-hmm. Syria, especially after what has happened over the last 12 years. And uh, obviously the Assad regime doesn't necessarily want to engage with opposition groups who have spent the last 11 years fighting against their control. So there's still, I think, uh, an awful lot that would have to be done. My guess would be that the inclusion of the language of reconciliation, trying negotiation in the statement is is a Saudi attempt to try to illustrate to the holdouts, the other states in the Arab League that don't yet want to re-engage with Syria. The Saudis are trying to push for concessions from the Syrians so they can then give to other Arab uh, League members as a way of saying, look, we can readmit Syria, but there are conditions. It's not a blank check. This isn't just a simply a return to the, uh, the status quo ante of 2011 as if nothing has happened. So I think the, the Saudis are trying to find a way to uh, to sell this to uh, other states that don't yet want to, uh, to work with Syria. That's right, Professor. Again, we know that today, when we look at this members of the Arab League, at least, statistically speaking, at least there are five members within this league strongly opposed the rejoinment of Syria. For example, we're looking at of Kuwait and Qatar and Yemen and Morocco. And again, help us to understand was by by readmitting Syria coming back to the Arab League, was this a political or social or even perhaps economic compromise? So in other words, the whole world today is we're looking at this globalization. And the whole world today, we are paying attention to this economic agenda. So by admitting Syria, coming back to this Arab League, what is the ultimate purpose of doing that? Well, uh, from a Syrian regime government point of view, the purpose is to signal that Syria is back in the fold diplomatically, that they are now accepted again as, a, as an actor in regional affairs, that the isolation of Syria that we've seen over the last 12 years is now over. So you can see the benefits to the uh, Assad family of being rehabilitated. Now, obviously, there are elements in the Arab League that are still very hesitant about that just because of the the brutality or the horrific Mm. circumstances of the last 12 years. And that's where I think there's a feeling in some of the countries that Syria cannot just be given a blank check to return. Any return has to be uh, accompanied by real conditions and real progress on achieving some sort of reconciliation, but not necessarily completely on the terms set by the government, because obviously we have seen 
a sustained uh, period of contestation in Syria, where a lot of people have been extremely uh, active in trying to reject the Assad uh, regime. And the Assad regime, it's, in return, has been extremely, uh, uh, perhaps, violent in some of its responses. So, with that in mind, I think there is a mood in some of the states in the Arab League to make sure that were Syria to be given this significant uh, diplomatic uh, win, which really would be if they were allowed to come back into the fold, that is not that that is then tied to some sort of meaningful concession or compromise. As you say, compromises are going to be difficult to achieve. But I, uh, there's certainly a feeling that they don't want there to be nothing in return. They want to be. They want to have something to show for the readmitting of Syria. Hmm. Professor, I want to get your reaction to talk about another country which is related to Syria as well, which is the nation of Iran. You know, again, when we look at the current political and social status of Iran, needless to say, this country is also facing some major political setback at the same time. Again, given the fact today, based on the latest news, that the current regime requires women, again, to dress, I want to put it in a mild way, is to dress according to the rules or dress according to the policy. But meanwhile, let's talk about the role of Iran today when it address the nation of Syria. Professor, help us to understand what is the correlation between Syria and Iran today? And also, why should we be concerned about Iran when we're addressing the role of Syria in this Arab League? What do you say to that? Well, I mean, the Iranian uh, support for Syria goes back decades now, and uh, Certainly, Syria has been seen to be part of Iran's so-called axis of resistance, the uh, sort of anti-status quo movements in the Middle East that Iran uh, has been carefully, at least in their view, trying to assemble. And Syria has been part of this since at least the uh, 1990s, probably before. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an important part of Iran's uh, sort of uh, cultivation of regional not allies, but certainly regional partners. Mm. Certainly from a Sunni Arab point of view in the, 19, in the 2000s after the Iraq war, US invasion of Iraq, you know, there was a talk of a Shia present that uh, King Abdullah of Jordan sort of talked about in 2005, I think it was. And you know, there was this view that you had Iran, Iraq with the Shia majority, and then Syria and Lebanon kind of constituting an arc of influence that had uh, links to Iran and obviously there were kind of paramilitary links and obviously in Lebanon with Hezbollah and you know, Iran was supporting groups uh, such as Hezbollah, such as the Houthis in Yemen and it certainly contributed to a feeling in Saudi Arabia and other mm -hmm. states that they were being almost encircled by uh, countries or movements with, uh, with links to Iran and to various uh, Sort of revolutionary or certainly anti-status quo movements. So those links go back a long time. Iran has obviously stood by the Assad uh, government <clears throat> over the past 12 years, and so that importance has uh, increased. Obviously, Russia has now intervened in Syria since 2015. There was certainly maybe a feeling in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states that actually if uh, Russia could increase influence in Syria, then the influence of Iran could perhaps be a uh, marginalized or at least uh, displaced uh, that 
hasn't necessarily happened. And we now see Iran supporting Russia in the war against Ukraine. So that hasn't really happened. But we also see wider in the wider region, we see Iran and Saudi Arabia now making quite concerted moves to restore their relations. And any reconciliation between Iran and Saudi Arabia could have knock-on effects across the Middle East. We've seen, obviously, a uh, delegation of Hamas being mm-hmm. visiting Saudi Arabia this week as well. Uh, we've seen the Saudis talking to the Houthi movement in Yemen this uh, past week. So I think anything at the broader level that can bring together the two main protagonists, Iran and Saudi Arabia, could have knock-on effects in trying to uh, uh, sort of uh, take the, uh, to de-escalate points of tension in other parts of the Middle East as well. Mm. Professor, I want to go back to the concept of democracy, as we mentioned before. When we talk about this democratic system or the concept of democracy, of course, today that the whole world is rooting for the Syrian citizens. And given the fact today that the Western nations have thrown their support behind a UN resolution calling for a nationwide ceasefire in Syria and the safe passage for the Syrians displaced by the conflict. Now, again, Professor, help us to understand when we look at the concept of democracy in Syria today, what are the significant points that we should understand under the Assad regime? Do we still have the availability or do we have the opportunity to grasp the concept of democracy? I don't think Syria has ever been a democracy, and I think if the Assad regime has anything to say, it will never be a democracy at all. And I think the part of the dilemma, part of the problem is you have all of these millions of people who have been displaced either internally within Syria, they've either fled from government control to anti-governmental areas or vice versa, and there are millions of Jews uh, uh, in neighboring states and now being resettled around the world. And the question is, I mean, do any of them, would any of them feel safe and secure mm. going back if there was a, any sort of reconciliation? I mean, this is the question, what happens to all the displaced people? Would they ever trust the government? And would the government be able and willing to actually create secure conditions? I mean, this is a, an issue, I think, that is probably more important for people to consider than whether a democratic Syria is, is likely. We've obviously seen elements of the opposition cast their support for, for sort of democratic movements, especially in, in title of their names, but, uh, but they're not in a position of political power to make that happen. The only entity which has the political power in Syria to do that is the Assad regime, and they control, they control the regime with an iron fist as much now as they did in the past. And so that I think is unlikely. I think what happens to the, what conditions can be imposed to secure trust and safe passage for displaced people, I think is probably what matters more. And I get a sense that very few of the displaced Syrians right now would trust mm. the uh, Assad uh, regime at all. So that's probably more of an issue to look for. Mm. Professor Ulrichsen, I want to bring another country into our conversation when we talk about Syria, which is the nation of Tunisia. 
Now we know that recently Tunisian president met recently with Syria's chief diplomatic and also uh, diplomats and also said that his country want to boost bilateral cooperation and preserve what we called historical ties of brotherhood with Damascus. Now, again, Dr. Elrickson, what do you make of this relationship? That Again, it's rather, on one hand, it's rather difficult to comprehend that Tunisians today are also facing this political and social unrest and setbacks. But meanwhile, for this nation is trying to build this brotherhood with Damascus. How should we comprehend that? Yeah, it shows you just how far things have moved over the last couple of years. If you think back to 2011, 2012, you know, as the world was horrified by the Assad regime's brutality in responding to the uh, opposition in Syria, we were also inspired by the, the movement in Tunisia, which also produced the only real democratic outcome of the Arab Spring. Tunisia was a democracy. It did have peaceful transitions of political power. You know, it's not just to have elections, but you need to have cycles of elections. You need mm -hmm. the winners of the elections to then acknowledge when they don't win the election, they, they then transfer power. And we've we had that in Syria for a decade, in Tunisia for a decade. And obviously since 2021, the president has effectively monopolized political power. He's uh, taken steps to dismantle political alternative political uh, groups. He has now arrested Rashid Ghanoushi, the uh, former prime minister, leader of one of the biggest uh, Islamist groups in Syria. And I mean, this backsliding, this sort of democratic backsliding, returning Tunisia to a sort of pre-2011 state of uh, sort of personal rule and almost dictatorship is, is, is really quite something. And for him now to be Talking in this way with Syria just goes to show how we've sort of always kind of come full circle. It's as if the last 12 years never happened, both in Syria and in Tunisia. We're back to a pre-2011, pre-Arab Spring situation where Assad ruled Syria with an iron fist and uh, Ben Ali ruled uh, Tunisia again with an iron fist. And uh, 12 years later, here we are, and these two countries are once again highly authoritarian. I mean, this is really quite something and uh, quite distressing in many ways, given what has happened in the meantime. But uh, it's really, really quite a remarkable uh, sort of turnaround. Well, Professor, I'm very glad you mentioned the term is called authoritarian country. Again, when we look at the geopolitical change today, many countries that can be coined as authoritarianism. But again, when we look at the countries in the Middle East, we're looking at specifically some of the some of the uh, uh, the most obvious nations that can be also called as authoritarian nations. Now, Professor, coming to you again, I want to get your reaction on this. Is when we look at the Tunisia's leadership today, is swinging back and forth towards authoritarianism, and meanwhile, again, it's also reaching out to the nation of. Uh, of Syria. Now, help us to understand what is the definition of authoritarianism today? And also, how much should we concerned, especially from this democratic perspective, concerned about those countries 
who are under this authoritarian regimes. What do you say to that, Professor? I think you can look at a definition of authoritarianism by looking at what the Kais Saeed, the president of Tunisia, has done since 2021. He's uh, monopolized political power. He's uh, arrested uh, opposition political figures. He's not allowed uh, the media to be a free media. He's uh, taken control over the uh, sort of legal system, the judicial system, the courts. You know, opposition or even independent and potentially autonomous centers of power have been uh, stripped of their of their influence and taken under government control. And so, an authoritarian system is where the, the ruling elite in power basically control all the leaders of that power mm. and don't permit any autonomous or independent uh, activity. And I think we've seen that over the last two years in Tunisia, and that I think is probably the clearest example of how. In this case, how quickly a country can move from uh, maybe a fragile democracy, but still a democracy where you did have elections, it did produce democratic outcomes in terms of the uh, party that won the election then being represented in government. And we've seen that all being systematically stripped away. So there's now you know, the political elite now in prison, the media is not free, and uh, and there's no real possibility to challenge that through the courts either. So this, in a way, is sort of very typical of what uh, would happen in an authoritarian setting. Professor Alrikson, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to the last question is what is the again, the question is very simple. What is the future for Syria in the long run? Because, again, we will look at that since the involvement of the United States government and also we we'll look at more countries are very concerned about this freedom of speech and freedom of, uh, again, um, any other given rights in Syria. But today, under the regime of Assad, that everything has been stripped away uh, by the regime and the citizens are all, I mean, again, there are no doubt are suffering devastatedly and also tremendously. But meanwhile, looking ahead, we still need to talk about the future for the country. So again, Dr. Orickson, what is the future for the country? Are we going to see any changes within the nation? And even better yet, is it time for the U.S. to re-engage with Assad or even this regime today in order to secure the freedom for the citizens? And what do you say to that, Professor? Well, I think the U.S. has shown so far that it's not prepared to re-engage with Assad and that it doesn't view uh, the actions of other states to be engaged with any favor. Uh, that said, it hasn't necessarily stopped that process of re-engagement taking place either. So I think there's a wait-and-see approach to see what happens, how far this kind of reintegration goes, mm. especially with the Arab League. I think the future of Syria is much more about what happens in terms of putting real conditions on, on the Assad regime as a price for sort of reintegrating it. Can the conditions be imposed? Would the Assad regime accept them? Would they comply? Would they abide by them? How would they be monitored? And then, of course, the other side of the equation, what happens if the regime, I mean, what happens to all the people in Syria who don't want to live under the Assad regime? Can there be, can there be a genuine reconciliation and if so, you know, would that have, you know, would that be able to sort of weed out many of the displaced people? And right now, I think there's such a lack of trust and such a sort of feeling that this isn't going to happen and isn't possible that uh, 
and it's going to be a long and difficult process, but I think anything that can try to focus on political outcomes rather than military or sort of fighting, you know, could, could be something. And of course, what kind of leverage could be, maybe not the international community, because the US doesn't want to engage at this point, but what, what leverage can the regional states put on, on the Assad regime? You know, Assad would clearly, I think, like to be readmitted to the Arab League. So what can they force him to give up? What, what kind of concession can they make him give? I think that's what uh, what we'll be looking for over the next uh, next few weeks, and especially up to the uh, Arab League summit, which I think is the middle of May. Well, very good, Professor. Again, I 100% agree with you. I think in May that we are going to uh, look at this summit among the members within this Arab League. On one hand, it's crucial to pay attention to the role of Syria, and meanwhile to see this ongoing political and also this diplomatic engagement between some of the regional partners. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Christian Elrickson. Again, Dr. Elrickson is the fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. I strongly encourage everyone to follow Dr. Elrickson on social media and also, again, his publications. And I believe that you are going to receive a lot more insightful and meaningful analysis. But meanwhile, Professor Elrickson, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure, and we always appreciate your insights and analysis to our show. So thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for having me.